0: You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy, with Renew Economies editor, Giles Parkinson, and leading energy analyst, David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use, and Solaray, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson and I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is ITK analyst David Leach.
1: David, um, how are you? I'm very well, Giles, and as usual, trust all our listeners are enjoying the the, the week and working away. And uh, we're off to West Australia with our special guest today.
0: Look, we are, and uh, we'll hear from Mark Patterson, the um, Head of Consumer um, Energy at Horizon Power, and um, Mark is also a former head of the CSIRO's Energy Transition Plan, which was a very important document. But look, first, a lot of other things happening around the place, David. Um, I went to Adelaide for the weekend, went to WOMAD, had a lovely time listening to music. That's
1: that's clearly the most important thing, WOMAD, off to Adelaide, but yeah, yeah, go on. Well, look,
0: what I was hoping for was a bit of a lie down afterwards, but... um, an awful lot's been happening, and I thought I'd get you wound up by suggesting, um, as the Queensland Nationals are doing, that we should build a new coal-fired power station in central Queensland.
1: Look, I don't think that argument uh, is even worth talking about. Uh, and, uh, Giles, there are so many other things going on that wa- wasting time by giving oxygen to those guys is just literally that, wasting time.
0: The RBA Deputy Governor Guy DeBell made an interesting um, Um, entry into the climate change debate. What did you make of his intervention and the importance of that?
1: Well, it's further validation of something that we all recognise, that climate change is a major economic driver. I've said many times, Giles, that one of the things that makes this fascinating is not just the technology, but the fact is that if you take climate change as seriously uh, as we do, uh, then you will see that all the coal, all the oil, all the gas, uh, and some of the cement has to go away by about 2035 in the world. And the, uh, you know, if you're an economist, that's a pretty big, powerful driver and be replaced by something else. Increasingly, we're seeing accounting standard boards. I mean, the Reserve Bank uh, uh, in Australia is only following the Reserve Bank in England. Accounting standard boards. We're seeing Actuarial Institute in Australia, in the United States, uh, in Canada starting to reflect that we've got accounting standards so the whole formal process coming from a lot of uh you know basically uh bald white middle-aged men uh finally getting into line uh <laughs> it, it, it's, it's going to start making making everyone pay attention to this in corporate australia
0: Well, as a bald, white, middle-aged man, um, I sort of (laughs) welcome that addition. But one of the interesting things that Guy DeBell pointed out, apart from reciting the lines of Dorothy McKellar, um, My Country, which is the uh, very same lines usually used by the climate deniers to argue um, against any action – he also um, echoed the points made by the CSIRO and the Australian energy market operator about wind and solar costs coming down, even with storage, competitive with current wholesale prices, which just basically goes to that very argument that we started off with, with this bizarre idea of building coal generators, um, whether it be in Queensland or um, from Trevor St Baker and other New South Wales or Victoria. Um, but it, um, it is gaining currency, but it has some way to go.
1: Yes, well, no, I, I don't. I mean, what we're seeing is an enormous development of renewable energy, as we know. And one of the things uh, listeners should be aware of is that we, you know, it, it's not showing up in electricity prices at the moment. Uh, and that reflects a whole bunch of things like water availability, I believe, at Snowy Hydro, and generally is not all that good. And so there's uh, reduced quantity of hydro generation. Uh, but um, uh, also, we've still got an awful lot. I think there's five gigawatts, as adding it up, of, of power plants that are under construction right this very second that haven't uh, even entered the formal DUID system yet. And they themselves will produce uh, something like uh, 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 about seven and a half percent of annual energy in the NEM. And then we've got another couple of gigawatts that have started producing but haven't reached full capacity. So. Even without any more new projects being announced, and there may may never be any more new projects now we've got all this MLF and stuff going on, (laughs) Uh, uh, there's still a lot big uh, new supply increase coming.
0: MLF will explain that acronym very, very shortly. But look, I think now is probably a good time, David, to go over to Western Australia. Um, uh, earlier today, we did get to talk to Mark Patterson, um, Senior Executive at Horizon Power, about a very interesting, um, well, a couple of interesting developments over there. Um, one about the decision to pull down some poles and wires and replace them with battery and storage. And the other one, the indication from the WA government that they're looking to develop a, pa- a plan to exit, to shift from coal to renewables and distributed generation. Here is Mark Patterson. Mark Patterson from Horizon Energy. Um, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Yeah, fantastic to be with you, Giles. We don't hear much about Western Australia, but um, there's a few interesting things happening at the moment. There's two things we'd like to talk to you about one is about this recent decision by horizon power to pull down 54 kilometers of poles and wires and replace them with solar and storage and that sounds pretty interesting and another one is to get your view or your input on what the wa government is thinking about in developing a long-term plan to finally exit from coal and to turn to renewables and particularly distributed energy but look, let's first start off with this uh, decision by Horizon Power to replace 54 kilometres of poles and wires with batteries and storage. Why are you doing this and why is it so significant?
2: Yeah, absolutely, uh, Giles. Um, so and thanks for the opportunity to share a little bit more about the often forgotten Western Australian story because uh, uh, being an East Coaster myself, uh, I actually... Um, have chosen to work over here, simply because there's just so much going on. It's very, very exciting. So with regard to the uh, 54 I should, kilometers. I should,
0: I, should, I should probably point out that you actually headed the, um, um, the CSIRO sort of energy transformation program or one part of that at least before you went over to Horizon, is that right?
2: Yeah, exactly. I had the real privilege of well being at CSIRO for six years and uh, leading the electricity uh, network transformation roadmap as a program director and the Future Grid Forum uh, work before that. So they were real highlights. And really this role at Horizon Power has just been a fantastic opportunity to go from all of that long-term futures work to kind of then making it happen really. So, and that's kind of been some of the backstory behind uh, 54 kilometers of line, which uh, is just a really, as I as I say to folks, as far as we know, it's a, it's a world first uh, where a utility actually is chosen to shrink its own uh, grid and um, in that respect talking to some American colleagues recently I could hear them gasping on the phone thinking and saying we just don't know how we would explain this to utility executives over here that uh, a utility is actually shrinking its own grid and I guess that goes to why this is so significant. But um, maybe to to tell you a little bit about uh, why we're doing it and where we're doing it so uh, that is down in the Esperance region, which is down on the south coast of Western Australia. And remembering, Western Australia is about a, th- a third of the Australian continent, so it's a massive uh, footprint that we serve. We serve uh, all of regional WA, so that's uh, about seven times Germany or five times California, uh, with a population of Pasadena, as I Tell my American friends. So, in other words, it's just it's it's mesh network hell, as I say, and and microgrid or off-grid technology heaven. Um, and so, in this particular case, uh, there was obviously a lot of rural electrification that occurred back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s back in the day where the only way to do that was really with poles and wires. Um, obviously we're now in 2019, believe it or not, and so there's a lot of other uh, options that are, uh, either are or are becoming um, you know, viable alternatives. And so in this particular case, we identified a particular feeder, 54 kilometers of line that serves 14 customer sites, uh, a very expensive way to provide electrons. Um, so rather than rebuilding that aging, higher risk asset, Uh, we've chosen to actually decommission it and remove it entirely and take all of those customers to an off-grid technology that we refer to as micro power systems or MPS.
1: So, Mark, um, could could, could I uh, ask how much power and um, energy, annual energy, is involved in that?
2: Yeah, well, typically the sites themselves are typically, if I go to uh, the actual storage capacity, typically these are all uh, farm uh, or residential site. So typically, you're, you've got energy storage capacity of um, uh, between about 10 and 30 or 40 kilowatt hours of, of energy storage uh, that you're typically sizing these systems up for um, multiple days of minimum runtime with your diesel uh, backup system. Obviously, you've got a range of different solar array sizes as well. Um, and so, yeah, But,
1: but, typical- but, but uh, I mean, the total the total load uh, that these 54 kilometres were serving was uh, probably not much. Wouldn't have been even a megawatt in total, uh, like no, ten that's times right. forty four hundred
2: kilowatts. Exactly. Exactly. So it's in that respect, as, as you say, a lot of these very long run, you know, long skinny feeders that running through uh, scrubby bushland, high high bushfire risk, etc are very under, underutilized assets um, and so they're both very expensive to build, to maintain and uh, in terms of the utilization rate, it's pretty low. So there's got to be a better way, right?
0: Yeah. I'd imagine that's the case in the eastern states, too. And I talk to some network operators and network people over here, and particularly in Queensland and New South Wales, part of that very same rural, rural electrification program that happened in the 50s and 60s. And they can see the same sort of swirl lines, long, thin lines that go through bushland that serve just a couple of customers. They'd love to pull them down and replace them. or well, they say they would, but they say they yeah. can't do that because of regulatory barriers. Is, is right. that the case? And what are they?
2: yeah so look one of the reasons that i work for horizon power there's three wonderful reasons and this will sound like an advertising advertisement for hp but uh i guess the reason i do is firstly vertical integration secondly light-handed regulation and third thirdly the cultural space to do innovative stuff um, put those three things together and you can actually do a bunch of things in an accelerated way that um, most other utilities really can't or it's very difficult for them because we're a vertically integrated utility um, a, a micro power system or an off-grid technology is actually a vertically integrated technology stack so it is as I call it is a vertically integrated utility in a box um, and so our business model and our regulatory construct kind of marries and maps perfectly to the technology stack itself and that's I guess one of the challenges with the uh, exciting the uh, future that is no longer the future it's now is that many of these technologies don't quite fit the traditional regulatory constructs that we've had elsewhere uh, for well decades really and the business models that map to those obviously technology is now kind of upending some of that and i guess the real question so so
1: mark mark sorry sorry i i i'm just interested I mean, you, you also had a supportive state government. I think they had a whole inquiry into this, uh, this um, microgrid concept last year in distributed power. I, I think Horizon overall runs 37 microgrids or did at the time of that inquiry and eight of these uh, standalone systems that, that it's responsible for. Mm. I guess my question is, I got a, lot more, a couple of questions. One is about the standardisation of the micro uh, micro power systems, which are the off-grid. If I get away from the jargon, yep. And you gave it a complica- something in a box. I mean, it, is it is it something that literally comes out of a box and you plug it in, or how much customization is involved?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, what I referred to micro power systems as is a vertically integrated utility in a box. In other words. Um, You know, most, because many of us are technologists, right, so we tend to all get, we fall in love with our technology, whether it's poles and wires or whether it's some kind of uh, new DER tech. But the reality is what our customers actually need, what our remote customers need, is they just want a full electric utility service offering that may or may not have poles and wires um, and that basically just does the job and lets them get on with getting their kids to soccer and dinner on. So our job has been actually build out, you know, to really move from trials, because as, as you know, that we as utilities, we love to do trials, you know, and I, I call it trialitis. It's a, it's a disease that we can tend to have. And so our goal has been to say, let's get right out of, you know, just an endless list of trials, and let's now turn this into a BAU new asset class. And a new asset class for utilities has gotta be something by definition that can scale exponentially. Um, so that we can actually go from not ones or twos but to hundreds to thousands of these systems that are all fully integrated back into our control systems and, and control rooms because that is the nature of you know, economies of scale is what utilities do um, and so. Yeah,
1: yeah, but 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 sorry, sorry, uh, sorry to keep interrupting. But I mean, I understand how that would work with a microgrid, which, as I yeah. understand it, is still connected to the main grid, and then you have right. that software system. But with a micro power system, it, yep. it's it's completely remote. I mean, does I mean, do you have to do you still control it remotely, or, or I mean, it doesn't actually connect to the grid, and its operations don't impact the grid per se, exactly. do they?
2: Exactly, but we still are responsible to make sure that that system's operating, that it's not a bother to the customer themselves. So in other words, what we're saying is, we're still responsible to provide that full electric utility service to the customer. Um, we need to be able to do that in a way that's economically efficient, that we don't, if something goes wrong, that we don't need to roll the truck for 300 kilometers through a, you know, a very poor track to get to that property so in other words our goal is to say what is the most economically efficient way that we can build out that full service doesn't need poles and wires anymore uh, but that can be you know many of those features of the system can be rectified uh, remotely if you like through an advanced uh, fleet management platform so that's that's kinda the what we're saying there really is what does a utility look like um, that's able to provide Thousands of customers in remote locations, um, a reliable source of low-carbon electrons um, in a way that um, is fully automated and is fully managed uh, by another party so customers can just get on with their lives. And they pay exactly the same tariff whether they've got poles and wires or not.
1: And, and, and can I ask, what does the um, levelized cost of electricity for your vertically, I can't even remember all the words, uh, vertically utility <laughs> in a box, um, what, 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 it, the customer pays the same, I get that, but what yeah. uh, is it costing you, the supplier, to get a return on capital out of it?
2: Yeah, so we're still real, this is uh, an emerging story in terms of the full economics of this, and we're actually, we've driven a significant amount of cost out of the unit price uh, for them where that's probably the next story as we've done the next level of analysis for the full long-run cost uh, of at the levelized cost of operation Um, but certainly what we've found is that um, the difference between uh, just someone buying a system and installing it themselves that they may or may not have a particular focus on multi-year in fact decadal lifespan and what we need to do there's certainly a cost premium that we end up investing in these systems to to make sure they're fully utility grade, um, but certainly we've we've seen um, reductions in overall unit prices from you know in the order of 50 to 100 um, percent from uh, sorry 50 percent from where they've been historically. 100 um, percent would be nice, I know, um, but yeah, uh, I was going to say
1: 100 percent would be really good. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly.
2: But certainly, we've seen in the order of uh, halving of the overall costs. Remembering that about half of the price of these systems is actually the deployment costs to these very remote locations, as in the full field works deployment, you know, uh, installation and all the rest of it. So that's not trivial. Um, but uh, certainly, we're seeing quite significant cost reductions. Mm-hmm.
0: So I'm interested in turning maybe just to sort of the broader thing about Western Australia. The WA government, um, it doesn't have a um, a renewable energy target as such. Um it um Western Australia is home to the most recently built Coal-fired power stations, um, blue water down in the uh, the southwest, which um, didn't do the um, developer very good. They they actually went bankrupt building them and um, operating mm. them. So, but they'll probably be around for a while. So, tell me what this new plan, or is it a plan for a plan, to manage this shift from um, what they've got now to a grid dominated by renewables and distributed energy?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So. Um, and look, thanks for the question. So this has been a pretty recent announcement from the Minister, and I think overall it was a really exciting announcement. Uh, as with most uh, parts of the country, we've seen uh, you know, the trans- transformation of the system uh, ramping up and accelerating, but often we're seeing a bit of a rearguard action at points where we keep uh, trying to apply kind of incremental uh, planning. If you like standing in the present and incrementally trying to adjust things going forward, which is not bad for when things are pretty slow moving. But I think as we saw with the CSIRO roadmap, and I think there's a lot of similarities between that and what I think the Minister's um, wanting to push forward on, is that there's now a need really to stand in the future and really take a more robust look at um, what are those future states need to look like Um, how would we actually understand those and then how would we reverse engineer from that future state back to the present and the reason why I think the minister's office is kind of seeing a lot of value in that is that you know all of the futures work all of the work around strategic planning um, that has a strong evidence base always says that look you can't actually deal with significant periods of transition and transformation by just applying a, a certain incrementalism, um, if you like, a business as usual approach to management, it just doesn't work. You end up with regulatory processes that are massively outpaced by the kind of the scale and the pace of the change. You have business models that that start to fail. You have technological, um, if you like, disruption. And so, as I understand it, and as I say, the information today is is a little bit limited, but. I think the intent is absolutely commendable in the sense that we actually have to do more than just incremental planning. We need that, but that's uh, necessary, but insufficient. We need this longer term, if you like, design from the future back to the present approach. Maybe if I was to Welcome kind of back, just-
1: I might, uh... Oh, sorry, sorry, go on. If I was just
2: to build on that, just uh, just to, to prove that that's not just some kind of airhead um, kind of idea, you know, from someone who used to work for for CSIRO, I think most of us know of and um, applaud the work of Rocky Mountains Institute in, in the United States with things like the E Lab and so on. And actually, I was on a call with Rocky Mountains uh, earlier this week, and the reality is, all of their work is actually based on exactly that kind of methodology of the longer term future state um, architecting and reverse engineering. And so uh, that was exactly the approach we took with the CSIRO Transformation Roadmap. Uh, It was certainly the kind of model we applied with the Future Grid Forum. And so in that sense, what the ministers uh, uh, announced uh, has a lot of, um, if you like, um, uh, family lineage, if you like, with a, a bunch of those kind of initiatives that have been very successful.
1: I'd like to come back a little bit to the
2: um, uh, what's actually happening right
1: now, as you say, and we, we've talked about these uh, uh, remote power systems, which are great um, um, uh, off-grid. But I'm interested also in the microgrid mm-hmm. and the development of a, a distributed energy resources management system, mm-hmm. which is a DERMS or something. There's so many acronyms in this business. I'd forgive anyone for not understanding them. Um, yeah. And um, how are you, how is your microgrid development process going, and um, do you see much development of it? I mean, uh, what is the actual share of renewable energy rooftop, and because you're actually way behind as in a state in terms of uh, you know new developments. There's very few large-scale new developments going on in West Australia at the moment. It's nearly all mm. seems to be behind the meter.
2: Right, right. So um, yeah, so look. Uh, in uh, the Swiss, uh, which is uh, the Southwest Interconnected System that serves Perth, and that's the area that's served by our colleagues at Western Power, um, certainly they've got very high levels of uh, solar rooftop uptake. Uh, I think it's in the or don't quote me, but it's in the order of about 25% of adoption rate uh, across their customer base. Um, so pretty, pretty significant, not as high as some of the other states, but still quite significant and growing. Um, In our territory, because we have uh, all of our systems, as I say, are essentially low-inertia microgrid systems, um, we've had to actually apply a hosting capacity methodology, um, which is really about making sure that we've got the capacity to absorb uh, the uptake of what we call unmanaged solar. So in other words, solar that um, has no ability at all for us to be able to if you like, curtail at times where we've got a very significant oversupply. That's exactly the reason why we're implementing a DERMS platform, a distributed energy resource management system. And I think it's probably the first or one of the first in the country. Um, and the reason for that is, is all about the orchestration of dynamically variable um, renewable energy sources. Um, and so that DERMS platform uh, is, is under construction as we speak. Um, and it is about, it is about taking a, um, a holistic view of DERs. So often when people talk about DERs, we tend to sort of use it as a kind of um, DER equals solar PV. Well, DER equals solar PV, it equals energy storage, it equals advanced demand response. It equals a whole range of things that need to be orchestrated um, in an intelligent way that ultimately um, is is a critical part of system balancing. So, so when when two two questions around that, do you actually
1: have a sort of uh, 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 there's probably a lot of milestones, but uh, a concept of when that DERMS the main functionality will be operational. That's the first question in in terms of time, and then you also mentioned in terms of the managed power systems, and I know that. Uh, there's a move to have the devices, which I think of primarily as inverters, mm. uh, become to have more uh, control, to be more controllable, and to have controllability, to have ramping built into them, to even be grid forming. I'm just right. wondering if those devices, from your experience, are actually becoming more readily available, and how you are you starting to incorporate them or recommend them to to, to customers.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so your first question. So, Onslow uh, is a town up in the north west of the state, and um, uh, that's a town that we're actively taking from uh, what's been historically a highly centralised generation source, and we're actively taking that, if you like, to advance to uh, advance that town to uh, uh, an accelerated version of the future, if you want to put it that way. So, in other words, we. Uh, we're now about, we're just launching um, a community outreach where we have highly subsidised solar PV um, through that town. We're aiming to get to feeders uh, that have uh, 50% or more of their volume, so kilowatt hours, megawatt hours, are being served from um, uh, distributed renewables. Um, and the reason we're doing that is because we're actually creating a real life. Uh, ex, uh, you know, real human beings uh, environment where uh, we orchestrate um, all of those DRS, particularly in terms of the solar PV, through inverter management. Um, even the most basic inverter management functionality, there's provisions in uh, the latest version of a 7 that give us the ability to kind of manage, uh, in a, a fairly blunt way, but still give us the ability to manage um, inverter output At specific times and it's really only a a limited number of of times where um, a utility from a system balance and system stability point of view uh, needs to be able to call on that or that dispatchability Um, but certainly that basic functionality is available uh, in compliant products Uh, there's obviously smarter products um, that are able to provide a number of other uh, grid services um, and our DERMS platform uh, really is designed to be able to leverage that and make dispatchable low services as well as from energy storage and demand response. And with demand response, so we're right now we're we're seeing in the order of uh, up to 20 to 30 percent reductions uh, in terms of instantaneous demand by uh, dispatchable uh, energy storage um, and demand response. Um, uh, dispatchability uh, or, or response uh, through those assets. That's
1: fantastic. I'll hand back to Giles, but what's the signal for the demand response? Is that a centralized... Do you send, do you send them a price signal or, or how does that work?
2: Yes, yeah, so it is a control signal as opposed to a, a pricing signal at this point. So it's not a truly market-based system uh, at this point. Those uh, type of market platforms uh, will come, so it's more about a dispatchable, um, if you like, control system. We also have um, a number of uh, new initiatives around new pricing models that are much more like a, if you like, a banded um, internet download uh, pricing plan that really give customers uh, much more intelligent trade-off, simple trade-off decisions that they can make. Um, that that makes the the business case, if you like, for. Customers, not that they normally think of it in those terms, the the return on investment more tangible for them.
0: Hmm. Just, I've just got very two quick questions just to finish up. So, when you talk about this high level of distributed energy in these sort of microgrids and that extraordinary amount of demand response, twenty to thirty percent, to what extent is that applicable then to a bigger grid like an NEM-wide system?
2: Yeah. so look, it, one of the things that I find so exciting about this is all of these towns or many of them are just a microcosm of an M. Um and so in that respect um, what we're doing and what we can do because of our regulatory uh, construct and our, our vertical integration is really just a fantastic way of saying look this is a sandbox for what can be done in in other large grids um, and in a lot of ways you know my theory about a lot of this is most of the reason that we have difficulty moving forward is a crisis of faith and it's the oh that'll never work kind of mentality well we're able to get on and just do it and actually prove that it works and i'm not saying that's easy there's a lot of complications in making this stuff work in a joined up uh, manner but we're doing it and, uh, and certainly Onslow goes live to your question before Onslow goes live um, from uh, the latter part of this calendar year um, and we're, we're gonna to start to see some really significant outcomes there.
0: It sounds pretty exciting, Mark. Um, just before, just, just, just one final thing then. Um, if you're looking at these sort of networks across Australia and you talked about the regulatory barriers that are in front of some of these networks and, um, and, and the advantage in WA of being um, fully integrated, if the networks could do it, how many of how many, how many of that how many of their lines would they snip and replace with them um, local microgrids?
2: Well, that's a question I'd love to be able to give you a, a precise number on, uh, Giles. But I think <laughs> how many kilometres down to the down to the last decimal point. Uh, but I think the, the simple answer, as I say to my American friends, look, we've got a continental landmass about the same as as continental US, and we've got less than a tenth of the population. Uh, So, you know, in a sense, just in the same way as Horizon Power is, you know, microgrid heaven uh, or off-grid tech heaven, in a way, Australia as a nation has got a lot of similarities to that by global standards. So um, if this can't be made to work well and very cost-effectively and with an export opportunity to the Asian region, then we're doing something horribly wrong. Uh, because, you know, as a nation, these are exactly the challenges we have. We've got huge uh, numbers of kilometres of uh, of remote power systems that were installed through rural electrification, and these technologies are now, you know, becoming a scalable solution that can be deployed, you know, uh, without poles and wires. So uh, uh, it's really about getting all of those other regulatory and business model settings right to just make it happen.
0: Well, let's hope that it does happen. And uh, Mark Patterson from Horizon Power, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast.
2: Fantastic to be with you, Giles and Dave.
1: Thanks very much. Cheers. Learned a lot.
0: Bye now. And that was Mark Patterson from Horizon Power. Um, David, um, some pretty interesting comments there. Um, I was particularly interested in this idea of having a plan because we're now finding out um, in the eastern states that the lack of a coherent plan is starting to um, cause a few issues. And uh, just to un- unravel one of your acronyms, MLFs, the marginal loss factors, that was one of the things that's happened in the last week which is going to affect wind and solar farms. We've got a congested grid. Some of them are being derated, in other words, meaning that they, the, the, the amount of power that they're credited with Delivering to the grid is not the same as much usually much less than what they actually produce at the power station themselves and today we're also reporting on some other wind farms and solar farms in the uh, in northwest victoria and southwest new south wales being told they will be derated down to zero possibly up for 100 days as the grid in the northwest victoria area gets upgraded and um and increases capacity so um, a bit of a blow to some of those developers um who may or may not have been or should have been aware of the some things happening
1: so, yeah, it was a great interview with Mark. I must say, I was uh, so busy looking up the dictionary for the latest acronym. I, at some, at, there were times when I, uh, I was amazed that a solar plus a battery system could, could turn into a utility in a box. But um, <laughs> It's the future, David. It's the future. Just, 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 just trust in it and we'll go there. <laughs> Look, um, so we've been worried about the possibility of congestion in the Victoria um New South Wales line for some time as soon as Snowy 2 basically was announced and also that upgrades to that line uh, were likely to be part of the stage one projects of course the upgrades are necessary uh, but so is, uh, once they're necessary and once you do them disruptions go with them and uh, I don't think this is the end of the disruptions by any means there's uh, lots and lots of work that's got to be done there and as Snowy 2 is built out there'll be probably be lots more disruptions uh, and so I'd be looking somewhere else at the moment. And I think, Giles, uh, it's more another example in the sense of the regulators, um, the governance bodies still being off the pace. When we can, The MLFs are a disaster, you know, but they were a foreseeable disaster. And really, a really smart ESB, a smart AEMC, and a really smart AEMO, I know they've all had a lot to worry about, would have seen this MLF problem coming, and would have already had a plan for dealing with it. Instead of announcing the day after they've, they've killed everyone's revenue stream, oh, we're really sorry about this. We're gonna look into doing something about it next year. Well, thanks very much.
0: Yeah, well, to be fair, AEMO did sort of say that a few months ago. But look, it does go to the point that Mark Patterson made when talking about Western Australia. Imagine where you're going to be and then work backwards. And I guess one of the problems in Australia is that particularly with bodies like the AEMC and others, that they were actually refuse to imagine where they, where we would be in 10, 15, 20 years' time and work backwards, if anything. They're probably looking in the past and, and, um, and going forward. And um, I guess some of our political discussion and debate is still the very much like that.
1: The ESB has been of necessity, I suppose, focused on politics. AEMO has been focused on the ISP, but it has to be careful. It's 50-something percent owned by the industry, and so it's got responsibilities around the place. The AEMC is the body that has the opportunity or had the opportunity to be a leader in this regard. But I think it's been bureaucratic, it's been overly driven by a single ideology, and it's been only reluctantly now come into the table to get things done. Mark's right. We need a more integr. We still need a more integrated approach. It's gradually getting there, but it's still not getting there fast enough. Renewable energy zones, fixed MLFs for 10 or 15 years for a particular renewable energy zone. I mean, to me, these are simple and obvious things that can be done. And in the short term, what the AMO can do is start publishing more information. Some of these MLF changes wouldn't have been as big if everyone had known, or at least they would have been predictable if everyone had known what power stations were gonna connect connect connected to what line when, but we don't have any visibility on that.
0: Yeah, as you say, we're starting to see the consequences. And one of the unfortunate consequences is that um, some of the equity players and some of the lenders into this market are going to look at what's happened over the last few months and go, hang on, um, we want a bit more reward for the greater risk that we think that we're undertaking now. And um, and that will cost some-
1: consumers, you know. So the theoretical benefit of uh, MLFs is that they minimise prices or they, 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 they cover the costs of transmission. The downside is that they're increasing risk the way they're moving at the moment. And consumers, as usual, will be the ones. Well, they're always the ones that pay, aren't they? (laughs) That's right. That's right. Yeah.
0: And look, um, something else that emerged over the last week was the um, great detailed documents from the Snowy Hydro modelling um, that was basically used to sort of... um, Uh, by the board to endorse their sort of uh, view that um, this project should go ahead and presumably by the government to put $1.4 billion in equity into it. Complete Um, with
1: a European study tour, Giles. No, 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 No big modelling report should be complete without one of those
0: without one of those yes yes well look um, what was your take on the modeling i mean i wrote a story about just sort of doing some of the headlines um look um some of the main um contentions of the main sort of claims about snowy hydro are a bit doubtful At best, um, it's likely to push prices higher than they would otherwise be over the medium to long term. Um, It's certainly going to push back battery storage and sort of crowd the market out out for them. Um, It's not necessarily going to um, help emissions reductions. Um, It'll probably reinforce some of the black coal generators for a short while.
1: Well, Um, I I wonder about that, you know what I mean? I mean, let's just look at the black coal generation. Let's imagine a a market where you only have uh, pumped hydro snowy 2 and black coal generation right so that's that's a market where the black coal generators are going to make out like bandits aren't they because they're going to be selling uh, their electricity in the middle of the day to snowy at some price uh, and snowy's going to have to buy 1.3 times uh, you know what they're going to produce to, to get it up the hill. And then um, they, they have to sell it <laughs> yes. for more than the black coal generators is to sell that. And he could just sit there just underneath them, uh, you know, taking the price away as all, all, all day long. And nor do I necessarily think it's going to cut batteries out uh, completely because uh, batteries will get built by households and whatever. And batteries are very effective in the one to two hour market. Uh, and as we see in markets like California, And it's quite possible that the reverse could happen. I don't say it will, but you could get a lot of batteries built in the next three or four years that would uh, cut out the absolute cream in the daily arbitrage market, if there is any cream.
0: Well, if there is any cream, indeed. So, I mean, will Snowy 2.0 actually make money for its owner then?
1: You know, we will never really know the answer to that. What I will say is that once it's built, it only has to cover its pumping costs. So it's, it's, uh, uh, the, cap- the return on the capital invested, uh, that will take a long time to emerge, whether that's the case. As we said last week, I do say that from a system security point of view, it is good to have to know that Snowy to some form of uh, pumped hydro or some form of large scale power generation will be available. Uh, as we run into more problems with coal station capacity utilization going down. Uh, The ramp-up requirements in both Victoria and in New South Wales, uh, and for that matter Queensland, as we get into the 2025 and beyond, are going to be really enormous for the coal generators. And even if they're theoretically able to do it, in practice, uh, it's going to be a real struggle
0: i got an interesting um, point of view from one person whose opinion I do respect um, and talking about sort of Snowy 2, and he just sort of said, well, look, thinking about Snowy Hydro, he says, it's the biggest, most brazen, most insidious gamer in the market, but at the same time, it's also the biggest insurer. So Snowy 2.0 is a good concept because the lots of, um, because it provides lots of long-duration insurance. It opens up a bunch of business models for renewable retailers, regardless of whether they use Snowy for firming he says. So um, that's another interesting perspective. So it kind of goes to what you're saying. Look, maybe the numbers don't add up. Maybe it's not going to accelerate in anything um, being done or anything being transformed. But the fact that it's there may not be so bad after all
1: yep i i agree with that and, and in the end since the government owns it uh, what do we care if it makes money or not i mean you know well I mean,
0: <laughs> to, to the extent that drugs on taxpayer funds i think we probably should care <laughs>
1: oh yeah the, the consolidated revenue is a pretty big topic uh, why don't we talk about uh 50 billion dollars worth of submarines in south australia that, that won't be delivered the last of them until 2050 or something like that i'm not i'm not sure we'll um Anyway, that's, uh, yes, that's another well, topic. Why
0: don't, why don't we talk about 20, minute, 20 megawatts of wave energy in Albany not being delivered? Um, Richard, well, we, we have mentioned on this before, and we were, we were in Western Australia earlier in the program. Um, one of the things, and I think look, you called it first, actually, um, the problems with Carnegie, their disastrous uh, foray into um, solar and microgrid technology. Look, it probably sounded like a good idea. Get a cash flow to sort of provide the funds for the development of wave energy technology, but they made a pretty lousy purchase, didn't they?
1: Look, uh, wave technology was uh, strictly for the technology optimists. Um, uh, Basically, very few people uh, really believe in it and still don't to this day. It's incredibly unsuited to a small public company. Uh, It's gone by the wayside. Uh, The learnings, whatever they are from it, will sit around in a lab and maybe in 10 or 20 years time, someone someone will do something with it, but I, I won't miss it.
0: You won't miss it. <laughs> well, I think a few other people will miss it because I think it does... Um, people are fascinated by these new technologies and it sort of sounds like it very nearly worked, but um, we'll never get to the scale where it could have possibly brought down the um, the costs of generation, which... Um, it's in- like in-
1: geothermal, Giles. You know, you might remember geodynamics that was going to spend, I can't remember, some small number of millions drilling a well. in.
0: $194 million, actually. Well, <laughs> that,
1: that was later. That was after the bottom... <laughs> that was after the bottom of the drill bit fell off, uh, you know, five kilometres underground or whatever it was three kilometers underground i don't know it must be a big fishing line to go down there and pull it up again
0: well, I do remember the board actually standing on top of one of their plugs um, on one of their wells, and um, they actually had a board meeting out near one of their one of those drill holes, and they were standing on this plug, and um, they got off it, and about an hour later, it just sort of blew about one kilometre up into the air. So they're quite thankful they weren't standing on it at the time. But, and uh... so
1: this is the thing, you know, I, I think this is why you really want to talk to a hard-headed analyst when you're investing in a new technology. Like wind and solar have turned out to be incredibly successful, and batteries probably will too. But for every one of those technologies, that, I mean, at one time on the stock market, there were no less than three or four new internal combustion engine companies. You know, Australia, home of motor vehicle engineering, as we know, had four speculative companies with new car <laughs> engines on the market. They, play, they prey on the innocence or, the, or not so much the innocence, but the fact that people want to do a good turn. Uh, they want to be green. They want to make a difference for the environment. We all feel that way. And so we often invest in things without really considering the practical consequences and how likely it is that um, you know that you're actually going to do something that's useful, rather than just you might as well go out and uh, you know put your money in a, in a biomass generator. <laughs> well,
0: someone just has actually six hundred million and something in Quinana. Actually, yeah, some the, the biggest biomass generator, energy to waste generator, is actually starting construction. Yeah, they're, not, they're
1: not using hundred dollar notes from a drug bust in it, are they? <laughs> Think so.
0: David, do we have anything else apart from thanking our sponsors, um, Solar Energy and Watt Watchers, for their continuing support? Do we have anything else to add to the agenda?
1: Not today, Charles. Not today. Good on I, you. I probably need an aspirin and a good lie down.
0: <laughs> well, that's what I was hoping to have at the start of the week, but it never happened. Thanks very much, David, and thanks to all the listeners, and goodbye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Watt Watchers. Makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs. Accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use. Energy Insiders is also sponsored by Solar Ray Energy. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring. They're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit
2: solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today.